Hello, and welcome to Crafting a Revolution, the podcast. My name is Katie Freeman, and I'm one of your hosts. Every Wednesday and Friday, we bring you interviews with female and non-binary makers of all kinds from all over the world. Today's guests are Molly and Rachel of Lawn, which is an LA-based furniture design company. Um, I actually found Lawn through the Female Design Council, uh, which I'm a part of, and I also follow along with their social media. Um, and so I reached out to Molly and Rachel and said, hey, would you mind being guests? So it was fun getting to learn the story of, you know, kind of their meet story, as in how did they meet each other? Where did the uh, idea for lawn come from? How did it get its start? And then also a little bit about each of their individual backgrounds. So uh, very happy to have had the opportunity to chat with both Rachel and Molly. Before we hop into the interview with them, I want to give a big shout out and thanks to the patrons over on Patreon. So thank you so much, Lee, Ellie Runyon, Annette, 513 Woodworks, Katie Thompson, Women of Woodworking, Kevin, Lefty's Workshop, sorry, Lefty's Woodshop, Christy, Twisted Twine, Jeremy, Jeremy Spies, Sammy, Go Sammy Lee, Rachel, Moody Makes, Bonnie, Toolmom Bonnie, ToolmomStore.com. Laura Oakley Soap Company, Brandy Studio Obey, Lee the Rainbow Carver, Ellen Little Bear Furniture, and Ethan Ethan Carter Designs. Thank you all so very much for your continued support helping to produce two episodes a week every week. If you would like to get your name added to this list, you certainly can. Just head on over to patreon.com forward slash crafting a revolution. <clears throat> And uh, no matter what tier you pick, your name will get added to the list, though I will maybe throw a carrot out there that the $5 tier lets you get a t-shirt and those are new. The Crafting a Revolution t-shirts are being uh, block printed by myself. Um, so if that's something that you would like to do and then help to continue to support the podcast in an ongoing fashion, please head on over to patreon.com forward slash crafting a revolution. All right, let's head on into the interview with Molly and Rachel of Lawn. Okay, well, I like to start by asking my guests to introduce themselves. So will you two do that for me? And I'll let you can point at each other or something to figure out <laughs> who goes first. <laughs> um, I'm Rachel Bullock. I'm Molly Purnell. And together we're Lawn, um, a Los Angeles-based furniture company. Okay. Um, I guess I want to start a little bit like, tell me the story of Lawn, like how'd that come to be and um, how long you guys have been in business together? Um, I'll start. We met each other in graduate school for architecture uh, at the University of Texas at Austin. And that was all the way back in 2010, which feels like forever ago and also like no time at all. Um, and, you know, I worked in the wood shop at the school and Rachel was in the wood design class. I mean, that's when we first started talking about or furniture. Obviously I knew who she was before that as an architect. And um, after school, I moved to LA. Rachel was based in New York and we were hanging out at our friend's 30th birthday party in Palm Springs, sort of talking about the furniture at our Airbnb and how it wasn't that great. And uh, so we just sort of like slowly decided to design work together. And um, Rachel was coming out to LA more and more for a, a project and then she made the move. And uh, then we just really pushed to have a, uh, a few pieces together for New York Design Week in 2018. And we were accepted to be part of the Sight Unseen Showcase. And that's where we started. Yeah, it was 
initially like just purely side project. Like we both had jobs at design firms and we're doing it nights and weekends. Um, we started designing the collection in early 2017, I think, um, and then launched May 2018 officially. Okay. Okay. Well, I appreciate you giving me a little bit more of that background. Um, so I do want to dive into kind of a little bit of your, each of your like personal story. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Molly, because you're at the top of my screen. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and I just want to ask a little bit, you know, like kind of where'd you grow up and, and how'd you land here in, in this yeah. furniture? Wow. Okay. I'll try to keep it uh, interesting and not too long-winded. Um, I grew up in Colorado in the mountains In I lived in a little town called Woody Creek, which is, but I went to school in Aspen and my dad is a surgeon out there. Um, and uh, I don't know if you know the Anderson Ranch uh, that's based in Snowmass, but it's a craft center that's yeah, in the, yeah. okay. So, uh, you know, I grew up going to talks there and, you know, kind of wishing that I was participating. I never really did until I, I left. Um, so that was a big influence on my life. And um, I was really into snowboarding. So I did that for a long time and moved out to Mammoth, California after high school. Kind of put college off for a while and then I um, eventually ended up going to college at Reed College in Portland, Oregon where um, you know there's also like a strong tradition of craft and making in Portland and in Oregon in general and um, I was really heavily influenced by what was going on at the Oregon College of Art and Craft while I was in, at Reed and um, you know, when I graduated from college, it sort of like had a year of good work and then it slid like right into the Great Recession. And I didn't know what to do with a liberal arts degree in art. So I started taking woodworking classes at Oregon College of Art and Craft and stayed there for two years, you know, while I was like tutoring and doing other things that, uh, I could could work doing and I would have stayed doing that uh, forever. It was like the best two years of my life because I um, felt like I was, I finally found something I really loved to do and I found a material I really loved. Um, and that was just like so exciting. And um, But I also had the sort of scare of of the recession that I felt like I need the job that I could make money at, which is sort of sad that I thought that, but I didn't believe in myself when I was 23, but I guess who does? Um, maybe some people on your podcast really do, but <laughs> I was like, I wasn't there yet. So I um, applied to architecture graduate school and then decided Austin was a place I could handle living and um, moved there. And then the rest is history. Uh, I guess there's been a lot yeah. since then, but uh, you know, I have a family of two young boys, like we were just talking about, mm -hmm. live out here across the street from my sister, which is cool. And um, you know, in my ideal world, I could do do lawn and then also do like wood turning and making beautiful wood pieces also so maybe I'll get there eventually that's that's an ideal life for me okay <laughs> uh and Rachel how about you where'd you grow up and how'd you end up kind of getting to where you're at um I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit and um, I went to the University of Michigan for undergraduate and um, started out thinking I was going to go a science route and then took an architecture class and loved it. And so it ended up switching to architecture and got an undergraduate degree in architecture. 
then I, um, after college, I lived in Shanghai for a little bit, working at an architecture firm there before moving to New York, um, where I worked at an architecture firm for two years before I went to grad school, um, where then I met Molly. And um, so I was had a much more kind of like straightforward path through the architecture world than, than Molly did. And UT has a really great wood design class um, that's based on wood furniture making that I took and really, really loved. Um, and so was making furniture just kind of for myself on the side, even after I got back to New York post-grad school. Um, and then it was only, it's funny because we both started out as, as woodworkers, but, uh, we work almost entirely in metal now, um, <laughs> which was a result of us in, you know, we talked for a long time about what we wanted to do before we started designing our first pieces. And because I think we both come from cold places, one of the beautiful things about living in Los Angeles is the fact that you can be outside almost year round. Um, and that's something that I think we both really try to take advantage of. And there's a real appreciation for kind of having outdoor living space here. Um, and we just weren't seeing the same kind of breadth of offerings and outdoor furniture that we were seeing as in indoor. So it seemed like a good place to start. Um, but not wanting to use exotic hardwoods kind of forced us into metal. So we learned how to weld and, um, yeah, switched our, switched our focus to metal. And I think we'll, you know, at some point we'll work some indoor only wood pieces back into the mix, but, uh, it it's been, it's been really fun working in a different material. And I think for, certainly for me, um, I still love architecture, but it's really beneficial to be able to, to switch scales, especially because when we design buildings, like we don't, we don't build any of it. We just draw it. We never execute any of it. And so it's a different part of the design brain, um, making something that we can make ourselves and the way we interact with our prototypes, because we do all of our own prototyping. And so that kind of physical craft and making really influences, I think, the way that we design and think about design, both for the furniture and just in general. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Did you, so I, Rachel, I know you spent time in architectural world. Molly, did you spend time um, after graduate degree in Yeah, I worked at a firm um, while I was in graduate school. And then um, I worked at this, I don't even know, it was a design firm where we also made furniture. Um, in it was, it was awesome. I mean, we had a metal shop in our office that I didn't really use, but, um, you know, I started to see the possibilities of what we could do. And so it was, we sort of did architecture, but we, nobody was a licensed architect in our office, but we also made stuff. So it was this kind of fun hybrid office that I, I learned a ton. And then after that, I went back into straight architecture where actually Rachel and I worked at the same firm for a couple of years and we still have a great relationship with the principal of that firm and we're you know working we do fun stuff together so mm -hmm. we have our feet in both worlds definitely and um you know mm -hmm. that's go ahead I was gonna say and we actually like we ended up starting an architecture company about two years ago. So about a year after we started the furniture. So we actually have an, an architecture branch now as well. Okay. So you yeah. design both furniture and structures? Mm -hmm. Correct. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do you feel like the two then influence each other? Because I mean, they're both designed, but I would, you know, definitely different types of design. You know, I mean, we, we're working primarily um, at the residential scale in our architecture. So it's nothing too gigantic, which mm -hmm. I think that the kind of scale of thinking that we do at the furniture level is, is really beneficial because there's things that like, of course the concept of the building as a whole is important, but like things that people interact with on a day-to-day -day basis at the human scale, sometimes I think get overlooked by certain architects that aren't trained to necessarily think, think that way. 
So I think that we kind of default to thinking about all those elements as well, because we are also designing in that realm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also there's, um, I think there's an opportunity that we're also just like sort of starting now to discover is like the, the sort of in-between furniture and architecture, you know, there's like sort of the folly or like in a couple, a year ago or something like that here in LA, there was a, a competition for a light to redesign the light post for the city of LA. And we didn't know about it. So we didn't uh, go into it, but you know, there's like the Olympics coming up in LA in I think eight years or something. And we know that there's kind of always these design opportunities that are kind of not buildings, but mm -hmm. the things that people interact with. And that there's like a civic element of that as well that we might kind of fit well into because we know the world of architecture and we know the world of, of making. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I mean, the, the first love is definitely making a beautiful piece of furniture that you feel really good sitting in or like feel really good interacting with material wise, but we like to think in all of the different scales, except for like, we're probably not going to design a skyscraper. I mean, you never no. say never, but I don't really want to. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't, doesn't appeal to me now. I mean, yeah. I guess I could change my mind in 10 years, but I can't imagine that. No, I can't either. I think a house is like the biggest. Yeah, it's like, yeah. <laughs> hey, Pond Squad. I would like to give a big shout out and thanks to this week's sponsor, Rockport Works. They offer safety footwear that suits people's occupation and lifestyle by incorporating performance, safety, and style into every shoe and boot. Each shoe features a slip-resistant outsole and a toe cap varying between steel, alloy, and composite. Other features such as electrical hazard and shock protection are also available depending on your safety needs. So Rockport delivers extraordinary technology-based comfort using the latest advances in construction and design to create both modern and classic shoe styles. So whatever the outfit, they've got you covered. Their goal is to support your style, to take you from work to leisure and everything in between. Try what Rockport works for yourself and change the world without changing your shoes. Now, they offered to send me some boots and I said, hey, look here, I got lots of boots. I got plenty of boots. I really, really, really need a shoe that's going to work for me out in the workshop because right now, if I don't feel like wearing my work boots, I'm wearing my tennis shoes. And not only is it hard on the tennis shoes, those aren't really the best to wear protection and safety-wise out in the shop. So they sent me a pair of their True Stride uh, work shoes, which are these slip-on shoes that have a zipper on them, and they consist of moisture-wicking micro-mesh liner and a leather upper, and they've got this nice little cushion in the heel that really is helpful for my lower back, personally. Um, they have these shoes available in sizes from six to 12 in both M and W widths. I went with W because I've got a white foot and I'm just gonna let you know. So I went ahead and ordered my standard like eight wides and they do run a little bit big on me, but I love them even more for that, honestly, because that makes them easier to slip on and off. So I just slip right in, head on out to the garage, do some work, come in, take them off, don't track sawdust all over the house. So it is, fantastic. Um, the shoe, besides being super cool and comfy, also meets all ASTM safety standards and requirements. All right, so if you want to try out a pair of the True, Stide, True Stride shoes or any of their other work boots and shoes, um, head on over to Rockport Works and you can use discount code FREEMAN 25. That's Freeman, F-R-E-E-M-A-N, 25, to get 25% off of your purchase at checkout. So take advantage of this super sweet deal for listeners of the pod and head on over and check out Rockport Works. All right, let's head back into the episode. Um, you mentioned like you still do, like you do all your 
own prototyping, like from the start, when you, once you've designed a piece, like, are you making just prototype levels and then passing it off for kind of like production level or have you had? It depends, it depends on the piece. So some were, we make more of ourselves, like the ribbon line, somebody else bends the pieces, but then we do, you know, all the kind of final assembly and welding ourselves. And then some of the other pieces that have, um, like the DeMille's, we have a local fabricator that makes the, the final pieces. So it, it varies a little bit piece by piece. Um, we're, so, we end up doing a lot of things, you know, even with the yeah. DeMille, you know, we got, somebody's got to attach the seat cushion and, you know, all the kind of like small things that. Yeah. Cut down. We have a fiberglass insert in the back and like, we're, we get the fiberglass pieces made, but then we're always like cutting them to size and kind of finessing things. And yeah, it's sort of things, things come to us and then we send them out and then they come back and we assemble and, yeah, you know, it's, it's not quite, um, A to Z we're making everything or A to Z somebody else is doing it. It's a real, a real like hybrid. Mm -hmm. But we, we make everything the things that we don't make ourselves, the pieces and whatnot, we work with local fabricators. Um, and so we have a pretty good network now of people here in LA um, because LA is actually a huge, it's one of the largest manufacturing counties in the country. Um, so we're lucky in that there's a, like a lot of very skilled and knowledgeable people here. Yeah, but we do, you know, if we're going to make a metal chair, Rachel and I will, you know, roll weld bend, cut apart, weld back together. We're not super great welders, you know, none, neither of us are. Um, we're licensed. proficient, but we're not like, the, the pieces where the welds are more visible, we have better welders make them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, when we're prototyping, we weld fast and we just try to kind of like stick things together and make it make it um stable enough so we can you know sit and test but then yeah. we need to grind up the weld to like take it apart again we want to be able to do that pretty fast so we're not is, yeah go ahead. I was just gonna say, it's actually been a fun thing for us in terms of switching to metal is that like it's so much more forgiving than wood because like the wood once it's gone it's gone mm -hmm. but like the metal because it's more of an additive process we can cut things apart, add a piece in, weld it back together. Like it's, it's been, it's really, I think helped our prototyping process in that like, we don't have to be too precious about things because we can make messy prototypes pretty easily and, mm -hmm. and adjust things as we go. When you're designing, are you like, are you creating sketches first and then prototyping or are you kind of like, designing while you prototype and part of my cat in the background there <laughs> <laughs> um we we always start with a sketch um usually we'll build a digital model before we start to make a full-size physical model sometimes we'll make small physical models before a digital model it just kind of depends on the piece mm -hmm. but um and then there's a lot of kind of back and forth with some things go through more versions than the other um like the demille lounge chair we probably made at least 10 versions of that before we finalized it. Um, so some, but yeah, we pretty much always start with a sketch and we'll trade sketches back and forth and draw over each other's sketches. And it's a very like collaborative process. We've had people ask us before, like who designed what? And it's, it's actually impossible to say like there's. <laughs> you have a hand at like some part yeah. of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it always some... changes, you know, once you get it out of your head and out of mm -hmm. the computer or off of the sketch and you see it, it just, then it, it becomes something totally different and, you know, and, and then it's, once you make it out of your final material, that becomes different. And so it just kind of like, it just evolves and, mm -hmm. and we really like that, you know, and sometimes even at the sketch phase, we'll sketch something and 
I'll interpret something completely different from what she was sketching and then we'll go off on that tangent. And, um, you know, that's also really nice. We, we tend to try to start with a narrative and that's really helpful because then a lot of the time when the pieces are done, we, we can actually see that narrative still there, but you know, it's gone off and become something totally different. Like for example, we just debuted these um, chairs that we're calling the Octavia chairs and they're, they look like these eggs uh, and um, they are made either in fiberglass or cast aluminum. And we sort of started just like looking at through books, like interesting design books. And we saw this rolled steel chair that um, Jean Royer had made a prototype of, but he never actually built it. So we sort of challenged ourselves to come up with a concept around that. And then at the same time, Rachel was reading Dawn, the book by um, Octavia Butler, a science fiction book. And she was telling me about these pods that they have in them and so we kind of just like smushed that together and um came out with these chairs that we love they're very different for us and mm -hmm. we've actually gotten really great response to them because people are saying i'm glad that you're pushing the language of the chair to be like this you know you're not just to like a to be like an alien a, pod. <laughs> like an alien science fiction pod with these fringy little furry tables that we made to go with them. So, yeah. So, I mean, when you're like transitioning from like architecture world into like furniture design and then your own company, what was that like? even moving out to LA and finding other, like finding fabricators, I can't, there might be a lot of them, but I imagine it's still like, you don't have that network when you land, right? It's like, you have to grow that network. Well, luckily like the furniture design community here is incredibly supportive. And so we were, we met a couple people in the furniture world here and they were all really great and like helped everybody shares resources. And so that was really useful. Um, there's definitely like early on, I think I would get more trapped in kind of architect brain than Molly would. So sometimes she would have to kind of push me to think beyond um, being overly architectural about things. But I think we strike a good balance that way. And why another reason why it's like so great to have a partner because we can push each other and be sounding boards for each other yeah I mean we wouldn't get anything done if it wasn't for Rachel so. <laughs> um, we would still have a bunch of sketches and <laughs> fun prototypes but yeah yeah exactly it's it's all about striking the balance yeah we have um I mean there's just a really wonderful group of people out here making and I think you find that in most places you know just the friends that you meet because it just takes a lot of courage to put your work out there and um, you never know what people are going to say and I think most designers and makers know that so they they want to help one another and lift you know lifting all boats is is kind of how it feels so so yeah, it, you know, it's like somebody will have a great, um, I don't know, powder coater they work with and, and we go and talk to them and, and they'll recommend us to their plater or, you know, something like that. So we've, yeah, and we've definitely done, you know, some blind outreach too, where sometimes it's been successful and sometimes it hasn't. I mean, there's like, they make all the, um, like airplanes and space shuttles in LA. So there's a lot of metal fabricators doing that. And sometimes they're like, oh, cool. Like you're doing weird furniture. That sounds fun. And then other people will be like, we're building parts from NASA. We're not gonna like <laughs> make this weird chair for, for you. you. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I mean, I will admit I, that's the reason I was in Calif- uh, Southern California was for an aerospace company. Um, so there you go. Cool. <laughs> there you go. Um, has, I mean, I found you both through, um, found Lawn through the Female Design Council. That's how I kind of found you guys. Um, so I feel, and I feel like they are kind of like coastal, like West Coast, East Coast, like, yeah. Um, so I, I could imagine that there probably is a little bit more of that community, like out in your area, but have you found any, has there been any obstacles that you feel, you know, being female designers in, especially in the furniture space, has there been any obstacles you've kind of encountered? Yes. The only (laughs) obstacles are on the production side. Um, we have had vendors that won't respond to us as women. And like, if we have our production manager as a man, and if he contacts them, he'll, uh, they'll respond to him, but they won't respond to us. Um, that's been really the only thing that I think I've encountered. Um, which of course, if somebody's yeah. not going to work with us because we're women, it's not somebody we want to work with right. anyway, but, um, yeah, that, that has been, on the like design front and the kind of like sales front, I, I haven't experienced any challenges on that side. It's only been dealing with vendors, you know, some of our, you know, much older men that mm-hmm. are just of a different kind of culture and generation than we are. Right. Yeah. I talk- had one experience in the design world that it, it made me uncomfortable. I'm not going to name any names, but somebody, I was at a fair or it was a show and our work was in it. And I was talking to a friend and another person came up and said, oh, are you this guy's assistant? And I was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> my work is here <laughs> also. But um, I think it was a misunderstanding. Just- <laughs> didn't feel great yeah but it wasn't was not cool (laughs) we did read we read a case study once about these I can't remember what kind of company they had there was a two women that owned a company and they were having the same kind of thing where like vendors weren't responding to them so they made up a fake guy that worked for them and would send emails as like Steve or whatever they'd named him and Mm -hmm. like saw the statistics in terms of like what kind of responses they would get and I was like that was so depressing We talked for a while that I should change my, like, uh, some like childhood friends and stuff call me Ray. I was like, oh, it's like gender neutral. I should change my email to Ray so that people don't know if I'm a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been quite a few case studies, just like even in the, the corporate world, right? Of like the response, like there was something where it's like two, two people's signatures got switched for like a day. Um, and it was like a male and female that got switched. And so the guy got to witness for a day, like the kind of stuff that she gets back in email <laughs> versus like, and she got to witness for a day, like, oh, wow, instant like respect. <laughs> and just based off of the name and the signature line. Um, I mean, I know that like in the design world, and I can imagine, especially in LA, there's probably a little bit more gender equality representation um but like even getting into shows and stuff I think it's a little bit uh maybe still a little bit uneven of you know equality of who gets to come to those shows and and share their designs is that accurate or do you feel like there's a lot more representation I mean I think for us because I mean we're primarily like we've done shows in LA and New York only Mm -hmm. and you know, a lot of the New York shows we've done are our site unseen, which is run by two women or, you know, Ken and company, which is one of the partners as a woman. And so I think that we've been lucky in that, like the, the section of the community that we've kind of found ourselves in is very equal in terms of gender representation, mm-hmm. but I have no doubts that that is the exception, not the norm. <laughs> um. Do you think that there's a difference because you guys do metal versus wood? We have a lot of people that are very surprised that we know how to weld. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but a lot of people are, are shocked by that. 
but, and I have no idea if this is true or not, but um, I met a welder on an architectural site once who he claimed that women are better natural welders than men um, because they don't try to force the material as much. I have no idea what he was basing that on, but <laughs> I'm going to run with it. <laughs> well, that's like, that's like one of my favorite um, uh, teachers I had for woodworking said something kind of similar that he always liked having women in his class and appreciated their furniture much more because he felt like there was much more attention to detail and like the detail added to the overall design versus, you know, kind of skipping over some of those nice, nice little added touches. So probably very similar. It's like, I'm not sure necessarily where you're getting it from, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure there's like exceptions on all sides, yes. but. Yes. <laughs> well, one thing I've noticed is I mean, I don't know again if this is true, but I feel like um, we ask more questions and admit when we don't know things more often. I mean, yeah. that's just what I've seen in the shops that I've worked in. And yeah, um, like I was saying, I I worked at the shop at the University of Texas for a couple of years and I found that a lot of the women that were in the working in the shop I became close with because they would come to me and ask questions. Whereas like mm -hmm. the men, I would have to tell them to stop doing something dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I've had, yeah. I've had uh, uh, people on the podcast, like who, you know, women who like teach woodworking classes to other women. And they'll say like, when they started classes, they would, have, I'll have it open to both genders, but they found that whenever men were involved, even though they were being involved as like a beginner woodworker, they like would come in and, and act as if they knew what they were doing and kind of mansplain to the teacher, even though they had never used that tool before. <laughs> and so, and then she would find that like, the women wouldn't ask questions like they would defer to this guy who doesn't really know anything um but is acting like he does so like i think i think you're spot on <laughs> i think i mean part of it is like our society though right we like raise men and we raise boys into men to think that they have to know just how to do these things. But it's like, no, nobody knows how to just walk up to a circular saw and use it. Like nobody knows just how to do that. You have to learn how to do that, regardless of your you know, gender. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I, we also deal with that in the architecture side too, you know, with designer, other designers or mm -hmm. contractors or I think Rachel can speak to that more than I can because she does most of the construction, like dealing with the contractors and everything, but it's definitely not always comfortable, but we do, we have found some really great contractors to work with. So yeah, I feel like really tend, lucky. Tend to work with them again and again and refer right. them to clients because yeah. But I mean, I've had experiences like when I worked on a, one of the projects I was working on in New York, there were on any, it was a huge project. And on any given day, there were 70 people on site, you know, either from the cup, sometimes a client would be there, but mostly construction workers. And I was almost always the only woman there. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you got, I mean, you guys have staff now, right? You've mentioned a production manager a couple of times. So um, is your staff, staff predominantly male we all the we just added a third partner who's a woman and then uh we had an intern who was male um and then our production manager is a male so all the bosses are girls <laughs> <laughs> um I'm guessing I mean since he still has a job then he must be okay with it but yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh I think he loves it like <laughs> Do you think there was any, was there any learning curve for you to, to go from working for somebody else to being the boss? I think that like my learning curve was like throughout my whole working. Like, I don't think I could have done this 10 years ago. I think I needed to like 
you know, cause I start, started having people work kind of under me at architecture firms when I was still at somebody else's firm. And so I think for me, it was kind of like baby steps towards being comfortable. Um, I don't think I'm like way too Midwestern. I don't ever want to like offend anyone. So I don't think I could have like done it when I was in my early twenties, um, or mid twenties or probably even late twenties. Um, I think we like needed, needed to wait till this time, uh, to really like be able to do what, what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Definitely. There's, I, I don't even know if it's age necessarily, but it's, it's speaking. I mean, for me, at least that I've done all the things I need to do, like I've got my degrees, I've got my work experience, I've got my experience in the shops. And now I have a business and experience as a business owner. So uh, until I was able to like hit all those marks, I, I could have done it. We're either. not the man that's just like walking up to the tools, assuming we know how to use them. Yeah. <laughs> no, we needed way more preparation. I mean, in hindsight, I wish I had more self-confidence to do the work or to, to do this earlier and kind of like believe in myself to put my work out there, but it just, it just took this time. Yeah. Okay. I remember like when I first started going to construction sites, when I was like 22, I would get so nervous that I would always like ruin something every time I would either like put my hand in wet paint or like step in wet concrete or like, cause I was just so nervous, like being on a job site with all these big dudes. And it took like, you know, 10 years of doing that before I was comfortable yelling at contractors, which I try not to do unless I have to, but sometimes you have to. Sometimes you have to. <laughs> yes. Um, what about just running the business? So like, I mean, besides designing and like making, like that's the fun stuff to me, but then yeah. you have to bring in like people managing, uh, taxes, all kinds of all that other stuff. What's that been like transitioning yeah. to? We're learning a We're lot of learning as we go. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, we, we ended up taking this really amazing business class last year um, uh, with a woman named Holly Howard. And she had always only done it, I think in New York and, and maybe once somewhere else. It was always in person, but then, mm-hmm. you know, strangely the luck of COVID, the, the <laughs> terribleness and then the luck of COVID made it. So she offered it um, online and we, took that it was six months and it's really helped us um feel confident as business owners I mean not that we know everything or not that Mm -hmm. we um you know are making tons of profit and things like that but more just like how to structure everything and to understand your brain and different uh at different times of your day or different parts of your business as you know, the entrepreneurial mind or the production mind. I'm not saying these right, Rachel. You probably remember the actual <laughs> different minds that they were, but um, it, it was just a really like incredible experience to, to have some understanding in business, which you don't learn mm-hmm. at a liberal arts school or, um, yeah. I mean, I That's- think. There it was, was aimed class in architecture, but it's it's like I one class that's like how not to get sued. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it was it's a class aimed at creatives, um, which is useful because you know I think we're all kind of interested in the like we're creatives for a reason. But the mm-hmm. running the business is a lot of work, and it actually was our cohort was there was only one man, the rest was women. Uh, so that's true which it's not a class for women. That's just kind of how it shook out. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And one thing that's been kind of amazing is since we started, I have, you know, been pregnant and had two kids. And so I couldn't go places very often. And so I sort of took over a lot of managing a business in a certain way. And, and Rachel then is able to go out and like, go to the shop when we need to meet somebody there or you know mm-hmm. the vendors or fabricators and um I just and or like fly to New York for a night and a half which she did two weeks <laughs> ago to go to a dinner um 
And um, so I feel like I've learned so much about being a business owner and um, you know, making sure that payroll is ready and you know that we're what well, you know our PPP forgiveness is like in place and things like that so I mean it's obviously not all financial but um so much of it is and yeah. Yeah. um that's you know that's I feel like again the only way that I've been comfortable you know putting the work out there more is understanding that we have a foundation that's solid as a business and knowing that we can respond quickly and respond to needs of customers or to going to a show or something like that. So yeah, it's, it's been really great. Being able to divide and conquer is also like so useful. I, I know a lot of people do it on their own, but like, I can't imagine. <laughs> Not at all. Hey makers, today's episode is sponsored in part by toolmomstore.com. At toolmomstore.com, you can find any and all tool-based merchandise for all genders, all sizes. They've got mugs, they've got shirts, all kinds of cool stuff. I have uh, one of the shirts myself that has the uh, hashtag woodworker on it. And I also have a couple of the mugs that define what and who is a tool chick. So super excited with the merchandise that I have. I know that you will be satisfied as well. Um, and also great discount for those of you who listen to the podcast at checkout. If you enter the code maker mom, you will get a 20% discount off any of the merchandise that you buy. So that's just toolmomstore.com. All right, let's head back into the action. When, I mean, you only had, if I'm looking at, if I'm thinking of timetable, right, you weren't in business very long when COVID hit. Oh. Um, so what was that, what's that been like managing and new business in this time of like kind of the world <laughs> being upside down? <laughs> There's definitely been some challenges, but I mean, I think luckily it's not like Molly and I started this out of nowhere, you know, we'd already known each other for 10 years when the pandemic hit. So I think that that kind of like level of trust that was already in place has been instrumental in kind of helping us weather things. Um, because we, we know we can rely on each other and we also know each other really well in terms of strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, that's like things that, that we talk about together all the time. Um, and so I think that that that's, that was key. And definitely also like having each other as a support system was really great. Um, I think it would have been a very different experience if I was like in, I mean, I already felt so like isolated in my apartment by myself. If I like didn't, if I couldn't even zoom with somebody to talk about what was going on yeah. with the business, that would have been kind of really brutal. We did. I mean, sort of fortunately and unfortunately we we missed a year of going to the the furniture fair in new york which um we were planning to do in 2020 to icff and we were planning to sort of that we we thought it was time to do that to really kind of get the contacts and get the trade um or get the trade contacts and, mm -hmm. and try to make a bunch of sales and we didn't get to do that and but instead we did get to take this business class and really get the foundation set so that hopefully we can now go to the show and understand that we can grow like, mm -hmm. and we can grow because we have all of this stuff in place. And um, so, I mean, things have during COVID you know, for architecture, strangely, we've not strangely, we've been doing fine. You know, people are at home and they want to make home offices and do ADUs and finally get to the project that they can think. And for architecture, it's sort of 
it's been like steady, but we haven't really been able to grow because so much of that is the person to person connection or mm-hmm. the going to to um, an architect or interior designer's office and showing sample work. So that's what we're really hoping 2023 can be if if the pandemic- 2022, Molly, you're jumping ahead of oh, here. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I'm already done with. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, thinking of looking at a calendar in my mind and it's already full, like 2022 is already over. So yeah, we we uh, we hope that if things feel safe and good, we can really make a push next year and and show the work to more people. Awesome. And who's like who are you targeting? Like, what's your target audience for your furniture? We sell almost entirely to the trade. Um, yeah. We sell some direct to consumer, but most of it's through interior designers. Okay. Yeah. So that's, I think people, I think we get good press, which is really amazing. Like we've had such great luck. And so I think sometimes, um, sometimes I think we know this a little bit through some interior designers, but sometimes the, a client will bring our work to their designer and then will sort of like facilitate that relationship um and then sometimes the designer interior designer will bring our work to their client and and mm-hmm. you know that happens organically as well but you know if we go to when we go to these shows it'll be mostly trade people and and that's really exciting because it's definitely the kind of relationships that we want to develop mm-hmm. And we can speak the language because we've <laughs> been on the other side. Yeah, yeah. Um, and do you think you're going to stay focused on like that outdoor living space for a while? We have maybe another year of solely outside, but we're starting to kind of pivot. I mean, the things that we design for outdoor have always been the intention and has always been that you could thought they'd also look great inside but I think we're gonna like maybe loosen the restrictions on ourselves I would guess probably in the next year or two and let ourselves play a little more with things that don't have to be able to withstand the elements because it does it just limits your palette a lot Mm -hmm. Um, which is a good challenge and I I feel like it was a good place for us to start to not have endless options but I think we're um well maybe like getting ready to to try some other things I would say stay away from anything wood for as long as you possibly can. <laughs> Given the current pricing. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> meal is also like insane. So nothing, <laughs> nothing's really good right now in terms of supply. Yeah. 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 Maybe like recycled plastic. Which... There you go. <laughs> We're also looking into, so. Yeah. Stuff that already exists that, uh, doesn't have to be processed is probably yeah yes yeah there's definitely I would say there's probably more room in that market than uh the other two and it would be nice to start seeing some design move more and more in that direction which I do think it is coming um I mean climate change is a thing and it's it's a big focus and so I think I I feel like the tide is starting to turn on some of that yeah, we're yeah doing I think the research. market is also there. Like the market for what people would spend on a really beautiful piece of handcrafted wood furniture or like one of our pieces that's like fairly expensive. Yeah. They I think the market is also opening up to work that is really innovative with materials that are recycled or mm-hmm. um, sustainable in a way that as you know veers away again from like tropical hardwoods for example which which we just said from the get-go is not mm-hmm. not something we're going to do so yeah I'm, I'm hoping I mean Rachel was I think was about to say we've we've been exploring that world and and we're we're actually really excited about that as a direction also like in terms of our values as a company where you know that thinking 
long-term thinking five generations mm -hmm. from now is definitely seven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something where we're, that we value mm -hmm. and um, it's, it's pushing us to think outside of our box also. Yeah, our, our approach thus far has been like sustainability through longevity in terms of like making things that would be heirloom pieces that would be passed down. But we are like, you know, doing starting to do some research into like what other avenues are available. Um, yeah, they just involve making a huge melting or what was what is Yeah, it? I want to build this like giant um, like press so we can make our own recycled plastic and I love and come up I with our own mixes and stuff <laughs> see if I can talk them into it yes I love it oh. get a grant from the government yeah. <laughs> uh yeah I've the closest I've really gotten to messing around or experimenting with plastics is resin um and even there though it's like I really really struggle with this idea of like putting sometimes putting more plastic out yeah. into the world like I have Definitely. a hard time with that um and then the thought of like yeah to your point it's like how will this really last you know like yeah. right now everything's <clears throat> the big trend still is like the resin river tables and it's like but I don't know like <laughs> one generation from now how well that joint is gonna hold up and if it really lasts because I've been I've walked through like designer showrooms and like resin pieces that aren't that old are like delaminating from the wood and stuff like that. And, and they want to charge a lot <laughs> for yeah. those pieces. Um, and it's like, so I think there's still a lot of learning that needs to be done with that medium that we're not at a level of like making it sustainable for generations to come yet. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, I can't remember when it was, but maybe a year or two ago, I read this article in the New York Times about um, art collectors who were collecting pieces in the like 80s and 90s. And a lot of them were plastic kind of or trash based and they're all starting to degrade. And the, they were sort of talking about, well, what do you own once your piece of art falls apart or doesn't hold up? And and is it the concept or is it, you know, is it worth trying to preserve something mm -hmm. like that? And uh, there was no answer, obviously, but uh, <laughs> I thought it was really interesting to talk about it. And it's, it's funny that we're talking about this because the reason we started looking into these plastics is like we're developing a, a line and it's going to be like on the beach. And we were excited about the sort of like recycled plastic mm -hmm. language of like removing it from the ocean yeah. kind of turns into something but then we realized like this isn't going to last by an ocean you know mm -hmm. like with salt like water salt spraying my hair is like yes. so <laughs> you know you don't want it to last inside the ocean you want it to <laughs> right <kind> of, <laughs> but how and we knew that pretty much the only thing you could get to last is like aluminum and it's got to be like well you know it's not even any sort of beautiful patina aluminum it's right. like powder coated aluminum that like you have to treat and have a cover for so mm -hmm. it's like it's definitely a challenge to know where how to market your, how to have this sustainability in mind, but then also how to market the piece so that it actually can do and function the way that you want it to. Yeah. Well, I, you got me thinking, I was, I just spent time, my family and I, we, not too long ago, about a month ago, spent time um, on Lake Michigan for a family vacation and just like the conversation with the kids and stuff of like all this plastic washed up like on shore you know so we would like if we see it we pick it up we throw it away type thing um but it it would be interesting even in that space it's like well 
it would last a little bit longer along freshwater beaches than it would yeah. saltwater beaches <laughs> where they do still have that issue you know because it was at first it was like oh there's people coming to the beach and just littering but it's like no yeah. it's actually washing up from yeah, rivers the lake itself and, and everything yeah. yeah um that's that's actually really interesting we always talk about our like midwest roots i i was born in madison and my husband's from Buffalo and, you know, Rachel's mm-hmm. from Detroit. And we like, <laughs> we think about it, the Midwest and that area all the time, but maybe we should go out there and do a, a <laughs> beachside photo shoot. Like Erie or Lake Michigan. Or... Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, it's a different vibe for sure, but it is maybe. I love California, but I always talk about how like the Great Lakes ruin the ocean. Cause I'm just like, oh, why is it so salty? <laughs> Whereas like my, my wife was um, like, was born in California. Uh, she grew up in um, Laverne and La, Pom- La, uh, La Palma. Yeah. The area um, and before moving to, to Iowa. But so when we lived out there, like she's only ever really seen the ocean. And so her and my kids had never seen any of the, the great lakes. And so that was like, I don't know. That was amazing to be able to watch it through their eyes of like, my kids were like, are you sure this isn't the ocean? And yeah, I'm positive. <laughs> I am positive it's not, but still that feeling of like, you look across and you cannot see land on the other yeah. side is always wow. a really amazing feeling. But yeah, the ocean's too salty for me. I'll agree there. Too salty. <laughs> it's, my, it's my review of the ocean. Yes. <laughs> Well, I remember seeing those like million dollar beach houses um, and sometimes, you know, pre-kids, especially my wife and I would go to open houses of them because it's like, why not? Why Let's, yeah. let's see how the other half lives. Um, and so, but you would always see like the railings and the windows yeah. and stuff would be so deteriorated from being, uh, yes, you know, subjected to all the salt in the air. So that does create issues when you're trying to create furniture to put. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which we're learning also. We're constantly learning. Constantly learning. <laughs> feedback from clients. Like, is this supposed to happen? I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, we are at the end of our time together. Um, and I just want to say, Thank you for joining me and also give you both a chance to let people know how they can find you and follow along with all the work that you're doing. Yeah, the best place to find us is our website, which is lawnlosangeles.com, L-A-U-N-L-O-S-A-N-G-E-L-S.com. And also our Instagram handle is at lawnlosangeles, spelled the same way. Uh, We're also, we sell our work on first dibs we have a monthly newsletter that you can sign up for on the website it's just once a month so you won't have to deal with too many emails yeah and usually half of it's like a book recommendation so um, (laughs) we both are book nerds so like you like furniture and books it's a good to go okay (laughs) perfect (laughs) i love it Well, thank you again for chatting with me today. Thank you. It was so nice to meet you. Yes. Nice to meet you as well. Okay. So again, that was Molly and Rachel of Lawn, and I will include the links on how you can follow along with them on social media and their website and such uh, for the show notes for today's episode. And where can you find those, you may ask? Well, first check the description on the podcast app that you're using, or if you happen to be watching this on YouTube, check the description box down below. Lastly, you can head on over to freemanfurnishings.com forward slash podcast and find today's episode as well as all the previous episodes. If you like today's episode, please make sure to like, subscribe, follow, and especially leave a review on iTunes and Spotify. If you didn't like the episode, that's okay as well. No pressure. Please follow along over at 
uh, Crafting a Revolution on Instagram as well. That's where I will post a new episode, what episodes are up that week, um, as long as the occasional shenanigans in stories are there. So head on over there. When I am not getting to talk with the fabulous makers and editing podcast episodes, you can find me designing and making furniture, home decor, uh, fun little widgets at freemanfurnishings.com and at Freeman Furnishings across all of the social media platforms. I'm active on the daily over on Instagram at Freeman Furnishings and pretty close to daily on TikTok at Freeman Furnishings. So come on over and say hi. All right, we are working our way through the week. I hope you all are having a fantastic week so far. Um, not finding yourself too overwhelmed as we head into the holiday season, hopefully. And uh, just get out there and keep making. And as always, let's go craft a revolution. <laughs>